to say, Lord, move in and wrap your arms around us and help us as we deal with the stuff. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Faith. Faith is a concept that has so many layers and dimensions to it. When I was, believe it or not, the hardest part of this message to me was not the message, but, the, but, but titling it. Surviving moments of weak faith. Does that mean that faith itself can grow weak? Or does it mean that our embracing of it is weak? I think that we need to understand that it's not faith that is weak. The faith that the kingdom of God operates by is very valuable. It's, 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 the, it's the thing that enabled our elders to get a good report, meaning our forefathers to get a good report. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. My concern is that I'm, I'm concerned that in the last generation, by that I don't mean the, I, I don't even know the latest generation, uh, uh, X, P, Q, M, L, I, I don't know. But I don't mean the last segment of young people. I mean in, in, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, um, using one of the Bible descriptions of a generation as, as 70 years or a lifespan. I'm, I'm concerned that I think we may, have, um, we may have misrepresented faith and we may have misunderstood faith. And because of the uh, prosperity uh, teaching, I think we have made faith more about winning than about living. And uh, we have said we need to have more faith so we can get more stuff. And I think what the Bible teaches is that we need to have faith so that we can live life better. I think faith is not weak. Faith is designed to be strong enough to get us through the mountaintops and to get us through the valleys. I don't think faith is the problem. I think, and, and it's because we're human. I'm not fussing at anyone. We all have this weakness that um, we don't always have a perfect understanding of faith. We don't always have a perfect application of faith. I'm going to draw some lessons from the life of Abraham, but I don't even want you to feel like we're picking on Abraham. He has the great honor of being called the father of the faithful. That means he's the poster child for faithfulness. If you want to understand what faith looks like in a human life, well, we could always go to Jesus, but, but Jesus is perfect in everything. Uh, and, and sometimes, I mean, we need to look to Jesus, absolutely. But sometimes we need to look at a human example because Jesus never fails, but we sure do. And we need to know how to work when we're going through those weak areas or our attitudes aren't right. Or um, you say, oh, pastor, don't, I shouldn't have come today. You're talking about my wife. No, you know, I've talked about all of us. All of us have those weak moments. Um, but it, it's, it's both faith as it exists and it's faith as we relate to it. You know what Jesus said to the disciples in the darkest night of their life to that point, it was the night he was going to be taken away. He said, in this unsettled season, Satan wants to take you, all of you and sift you like wheat to just shake your eye teeth out. 
is the Chitty translation of that. He wants to shake you till you can't be shaken anymore. And uh, he said, but I prayed for you. Now he was talking to Peter in particular, <coughs> in particular, because we know the Greek shifts from plural to singular at that point. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. I think we need to realize that though faith doesn't fail ultimately, faith can fail in moments. I know this is going to be hard for some of you to take, but all you have to do is read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the, the pinnacle of the encouragement to be faithful, to hang in there, to not fall away. And Hebrews 11 gives us a list of, um, oh, I forget, a dozen and a half or so names of people that are called heroes of the faith. But I want to tell you, when you look at that list, some of them won because of faith and some of them lost in spite of faith. As far as the world goes, they wouldn't accept deliverance. That would have been a cheap way out. Some subdued armies, some subdued nations, some stood up to kings and others, it says, were, were killed, were imprisoned, were, uh, we know Isaiah was sawn, sawn, so, sawed, sawed in half. <laughs> and um, I'm getting my King James and my modern English uh, overlapping there. But loved ones, we need to understand that faith never fails, but we may go through periods where we experience a victory that looks an awful lot like a defeat. And in the eyes of the world, it is a defeat. I think I've, I've read something somebody sent me this week. I think it was from Christine Kane. She said, oftentimes we feel like we have just been buried when we don't understand that we have just, we've just been planted. And we're not being buried to be done away with, but we are. You know what? Whether you have been buried or whether you've been planted, the scenery is exactly the same. And, and it takes a little bit of time for you to find out if you were planted as a seed or buried as a rejected project. And most of the time when we feel like we have been buried, we haven't been buried, we've been planted and the seed of God that has been put in us by faith is waiting to spring forth. There's a passage of scripture that's odd. I think it's, I keep forgetting. I ought to know my Bible addresses better. You don't need to look it up, but it's either in Luke 11 or Luke 18. I think it's Luke 18. But there's a passage where Jesus um, was teaching about difficulty, about having faith, keep praying, even though it looks like your prayers are not being answered. And he comes to the end of that passage in Luke 11 or Luke 18. Justin, will you, do you, do you have your Bible? You can look it up just so I can begin to sound like an authority again. Um, <laughs> it begins with the admonition to, to not grow weary in praying. And then ab about verse eight, Jesus says something. Yeah, like I said, it was chapter 18. <laughs> chapter 18. I, I knew where it was. I was just putting you to the test. Um, thank you, Justin. Um, Jesus says something that seems very strange. When he tells us to keep hanging in there, keep doing right. He said, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Now that seems like a strange question. I've had Bible teachers try to explain that we don't have a guarantee that the church is going to survive. 
We don't, have a, we don't have a guarantee that Israel is going to survive. We don't have a guarantee that things are going to turn out right. Even Jesus himself didn't know. Because Jesus said, when I come back, will I even find faith? But I really think, and, and I, I need to do a sermon on that verse to deal with the reasons why. But I don't think Jesus will say, and I tell you what, I'm so disgusted. I'm wondering when I come back, if anybody's going to have faith. No. Oh, thank God. He doesn't encourage us that way. That's not encouragement at all. That's discouragement. He wasn't saying, I don't know. The future's up for grabs. That's a big theological trend right now is that God doesn't know the future. And he's like us waiting to figure it out. He wasn't saying, I don't know if we'll have faith or not. I believe, and like I said, there's good reasons for it, but I don't have time to deal with it. I believe uh, today, I believe what Jesus was saying was this. He said, when I return, it, it goes with the other times when he said, when I return, you know, I'll come like a thief. And he tells us a lot about the nature of things when he returns. And he says, when I return, he says, the question is going to be, do you have faith? The question is going to be what's in your heart. We know there are levels of faith and, you know, you say, well, I believe in God. I believe there's a God. So I have faith. That is faith, but it's a very low level of faith. In fact, James says that to believe in God is the level of faith that demons have. Demons believe and tremble. Don't think you're doing God a favor by believing he exists. The very demons of, God, of hell believe he exists and they believe it so strongly it makes them tremble. So don't stop there. Don't stop with a, well, I, I, I believe in God. Um, I, I think what Jesus was talking about in which chapter? 18. Luke 18, that's right. <laughs> You've already learned something. I've already learned something. Um, um, I believe what Jesus was saying with, with his previous admonition of keep on praying, keep hanging in there, keep doing what's right. Jesus was saying, you're going to be going through seasons from time to time when you are exhausted. You are, it seems like everything you're praying that parable teaches is not being answered. You don't need to lift your hand, but ask yourself, have you been through a time recently where it looks like, um, uh, what is God doing? I don't know, but I can tell you what he's not doing. Look at my prayer list. He's not doing this. And he says, keep, I mean, we all go through times like this. I remember I was pastoring a church one time and everything was going wrong that could go wrong. It seemed, looking back, it wasn't everything. It was just a lot of things that were going wrong. And, um, uh, one of the elders came by and tried to encourage me, pastor, hang in there. We, we reap what we sow. And I, I didn't know if he was saying good or bad. And I talked to him about it later. He was saying good. He said, we've been, we've been sowing good seed. It's going to be okay. But I, I went to prayer saying, Lord, I don't know what he meant, but I tell you this, I have not lived long enough to commit this much sin to be reaping what we're reaping that right now. I'm, 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 in my, I'm 26 years old. I have not lived long enough to produce this kind of crop. Have you ever felt like that? Most of us have. There are times that circumstances will beat you down. There are times that we... We're walking in pride, in a, in a prideful faith because we say, oh, I've got this, I've got this. 
And loved ones, that's why the Bible said, when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. The moment you think you've got it is a good time to fall to the floor, cover yourself with a blanket and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on. And I humble myself before you. I do know this. Faith can be weak. And you say, well, I know I'd like to talk to you about some people here that I think have weak faith. Let me tell you, we don't have the ability usually to gauge what is strong faith and what is weak faith. Jesus looked at Peter and, and he did this with other instances that baffle me. Peter gets out of the boat, walks on water. He walks on water. And Jesus says, oh, you little faith. You have little faith. I would want to pat on the back and say, a boy, six steps on the water before you went down. Oh, break out the Pepsi. <laughs> if I was Peter, I'd have said, well, little faith, you know, there's nobody else got out of the boat. <laughs> Who else has walked on water besides you, Lord? I mean, even when you got Israel out of Egypt, at least you move the water for them. I look at that and Jesus, he wasn't critical. He was trying to encourage Peter, but his evaluation was different than ours. I would have said, hey, we're making progress. He said, this, this faith is so weak. I don't understand. The only thing I can figure out is when you're walking on water, that ought to be building your faith instead of you losing faith. But Peter was at a disadvantage. Rare archaeological studies have shown that his last name was Peter. And, I mean, was uh, Chitty. And so he was Peter Chitty, and he's prone to these kinds of things. And uh, then you, you take the woman whose daughter was sick. She wasn't even a Jew. You take the Roman centurion that Jesus said, I'll go to your house and heal your servant. And Jesus and the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I understand authority. And I know when you live under authority, authority works for you. And you have authority because you live under authority. And I look at you and I see you're under an authority to the Father or to God. And he says, I know you have authority because I understand authority. And, you know, you, you, you think about that woman making such, you know, Lord, I know I, the, the children deserve the food, not the dogs, but even dogs get to eat crumbs that fall from the, the master's table. And the, the centurion says, I understand authority. And you think those principles are so simple. Anybody ought to get that. An elementary school kid ought to get that. But Jesus looked at those two Gentiles and said, I have not seen faith this great in all of Israel. So all I'm trying to say is that our estimation of great faith may not be a true estimation of great faith. Whether it's in your life or someone else's, you may feel like I am, I am, I am lower than worm's dung. I am at the very bottom of the valley. There's nothing good in my life. And God may be looking at you and saying, you have incredible faith. You have incredible faith. So faith is this thing. I think we need to commit to this. I think we need to commit to we need to have a faith that grows a faith that is growing. Now it can grow in volume. I don't know how you measure faith. I don't know if faith is measured by pounds or quarts or gallons. I don't know. But sometimes I know there's the quantitative 
dynamic of faith. We have a lot of faith. Jesus said there's sizes of faith. It may be as small as the mustard seed, but it needs to be growing. And don't worry if it's small, he says, because even the smallest seeds can produce the greatest plants. Okay, so I need to have a, an increase of faith in volume. I need to have an increase of faith in, in strength. How strong is my faith? Faith may be weak. Faith may be weak, but, uh, uh, but it can be very strong. It can be very strong, um, even though it's not big in size. It may be just something simple. Uh, you can do something that seems trivial. Uh, a little boy uh, down in uh, uh, the panhandle of Florida felt the Lord give him a word for a man in the church. And this little boy, elementary school kid, went back to this man and said, uh, he called him brother so-and-so because everybody in the church called each other brother, but he wasn't right with God. He had been in church and then fallen out for years and he came back to church and um, the Lord spoke to this little elementary school, go back to brother so-and-so and tell him it's time for him to come back to me. And if he doesn't, tell him this. And so that little boy went back and said, brother, so-and-so, the family, they're still living. I don't have their permission to use their name, but, um, or I didn't try to get it. But he goes back to him and says, brother, so-and-so, uh, the Lord says it's time for you to come home tonight. It was the middle of the altar call. The spirit of God was moving. Time for you to come home. And the man, his wife said he reached out and patted the little boy on the head. He said he thought it was so cute that this little boy was playing preacher. He's thinking, I thought I know more about church than you'll ever know, little man. So he patted him on the head and said, thank you, son. He said, but I just don't feel um, that it's time for me to come home tonight. But thank you for sharing. And the little boy obeying God said, okay, then. Well, then you go to hell and fry like sausage. And he, he went, that's what God told him to say. Now, he didn't say it disrespectfully. There wasn't an ounce of that in his voice. He just said, that's what God, he later said, that's what God told me to say. And that man was shocked. He was insulted. He went home mad, said, I'll never go to church. And he tossed and turned all night long. He couldn't sleep. You go to hell and fry like sausage. And his wife said, I was cooking breakfast the next morning and I was cooking sausage. And he came running in there and said, pray for me almost said her name. Pray for me, Ramona. I don't want to go to hell. She said, as far as I know, he's the only person in this part of the state that ever came to Jesus over a piece of sausage. I'll tell you, that was weak. That was frail. That was the weakest of vessels imaginable. But he, that little boy knew, he just knew if I do what God said, then I may be weak, but my faith is strong. So we need to have faith that's getting stronger, uh, in, that's growing in strength, growing in volume. And I don't know where to draw the line in these things, but it also needs to draw, uh, grow in quality. See, sometimes it's not a matter of, of uh, sometimes it's not a matter of quantity, it's a matter of quality. I'd rather have a, a, a one ounce silver coin than a dump truck full of feathers. I mean, just a dump truck full of chicken feathers. You know, it fills the whole truck, <coughs> but it's of no real value. I don't know if anybody wants a chicken feather, you know, pillow or mattress. 
<coughs> but, a, but a silver coin, it has some substance to it. So I want to encourage you to let's let our faith begin to grow and let's learn what, today we want to talk about what causes weak faith and, and um, we want to talk about the consequences of weak faith. Now, I, by design, it's a long introduction that we've just gone through, but let's go to that champion of faith, Abraham, and let's look at him at the moment he had just received the promise of God, the command of the Lord. God says to Abraham, leave your hometown, leave Ur of the Chaldees, and, uh, which was a center of, of idol worship. The Bible doesn't say this, but, but Jewish tradition says that his father was an idol maker and that Abraham was from a family of idol makers. We don't know that, uh, but that's what tradition says. Um, and God said, I want you to leave and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to uh, give you a, uh, make you a father, not only of, 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 of your own family, but a father of nations. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God said, leave your family behind. Loved ones, following Jesus doesn't mean you mistreat your family. Following Jesus doesn't mean you disregard relationships. In fact, uh, I've heard, you know, a lot of people have excused neglecting their family on I'm serving Jesus. I'm giving all to Jesus. But let me tell you what Paul said. Paul said, if you want to marry, that's fine. He said, if you want to remain single, that's fine. Be sure you're walking in the gift that God gave you uh, because not everybody is gifted to be single all of their life. He said it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, not everybody has the gift of celibacy. And until you get married, most folks don't think they have the gift of celibacy. And one of their greatest fears is that God has called them to a life of celibacy. You know, I'm, I'm never going to get married. Well, you, you know, you, it, it's a big deal. But this is what Paul said for the, his line of reasoning. He said, if you serve, if you marry, you can serve the Lord. If you stay single, you can serve the Lord. But he said, understand this, if you marry, and we'll say he's talking to men, if you marry, then understand this, you have an obligation to your wife. You have an obligation to please your wife. He, he's, and he didn't say that obligation was wrong. He said, that's the way family works. And this is what Paul was saying. He says, don't blame being an absent father on serving the Lord. Don't blame being an irresponsible wife on serving the Lord because God expects you to live up to your obligations. Okay. He expects us to do that. And God wasn't telling Abraham, family's bad. When you get saved, you got to leave your family. Not at all. In fact, it's usually the opposite. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to the Philippian jailer, and you will be saved and your household. No, no. It, 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 Jesus wasn't saying having a family is bad. But sometimes God puts a unique set of requirements on us because it is in obedience to those unique set of, I'm not losing you, am I? You with me? Okay. How about those of you online? Okay, good. The normal, the no, I say the normal, not that the other is abnormal, but the usual state is a married life. And he says that I'll work with you and your whole family. But he did tell Abraham to leave his family. Why? We don't know. It wasn't because family is bad. Maybe God knew that they weren't going to follow. 
Maybe God knew that I'm going to typify faith and I want to use a man that's been called to leave everything. I want people in 2,000 years from now, I want people 4,000 years from now to be able to look back and say, even if my family rejects me, God will be with me. We don't know the reason, but God said, leave your family and go to a land that's not anywhere connected to Ur of the Chaldees. That's huge. He left looking for a city that he didn't know where it was. He didn't know what it was called, but he knew there was a spiritual dynamic to it because it says that he knew that its ruler and its builder and its maker was God. So he heads out and he makes a few mistakes. We'll talk about that, but I'm not criticizing him. He's one of us. But let's look at what Abraham did when the first major storm came crashing in on his newfound faith. God says, go, I'll take care of you. And he goes and the bottom falls out. There's a famine in the land. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine was severe in the land. Egypt had this marvelous ability to survive famine because of the Nile. Um, for, I, hey, I'm teaching, just bear with me here. Um, God said through Moses, when they were going into the land, he said, you've got to remember now, it's, an, it's an imperative that you have faith and trust God because I am not sending you to a land of foot pumps. I'm sending you to a land that has an early and a latter rain. You say, what does that mean? In Egypt, when a famine came, they could survive a famine for years. And unless it was an unusually long famine, like the seven-year famine during the time of Joseph, it did not affect them because there was so much water in the Nile and the delta so spread out that all they had to do was put in place their foot pumps. We call it irrigation. And they could pump the water to the crops that would normally die. They could pump water to crops that would die in every other uh, Middle Eastern country almost. And the famine would not touch them. He said, I'm sending you to a place that depends on the former and latter rain. He said, if it doesn't rain, you are dead. The former rain, the early rain comes to germinate the seed and to start the process of life. And you will go all through the growing center seeing very little growth. And you'll usually think the crops are dead before you get to the latter rain. And the latter rain will come and then push them over the line and they will, they will produce the fruit. But he said, that's why God told Israel, he said, when you have your crops in the field and it looks like they're in danger of being lost, pray to me and ask me why it hasn't rained. And then I'll tell you what you've done and you can repent and we'll have the rain again. He said, this is a big deal. And loved ones, it's the same way in our life. We want desperately to live by the Nile so that when things begin to dry up, all we have to do is just bump it a little bit. Use credit card. Use somebody else's resource. Whatever it is, let's just, let's just pump it a little bit and we'll be fine. And God has done the most marvelous thing for you and I and every one of us despise it. I have, I have sent in written reports in my journals that he needs to do this a different way. But he sends me to a place where I can't manipulate. Oh, sometimes I can. Sometimes I can. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use a credit card. Or you, I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have so many backup systems 
that God has done something so special for us. He moves us to a place where sometimes we don't have any backup systems. We've got to pray for the rain. And sometimes it takes time, like Elijah praying seven times. God is moving us back to the place where we have an utter dependency on him. And so he moves us from the land of irrigation to the land of prayergation. And we've got to pray through. Now, we're going to find out that every place, every time in scripture, almost without exception, Egypt was a bad place to go. Now, it wasn't for Jesus and his family. He grew up in a strong Jewish community uh, in, in Egypt, or at least several years. And we know that Jeremiah, according to tradition, was offered refuge in Egypt. So Egypt's not in and of itself evil, but when we let Egypt become the place that we naturally default to, we can get in trouble. We can get in trouble every time. Now, if, you'll, if you will quit interrupting me, we'll finish reading the text here. Um, it came about when he was approaching Egypt that he said to his wife, Sarah, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now they were both old enough for social security, but she was a stunningly beautiful woman. And even in her older age, she was past the years of childbearing, we find out from the rest of the story, she was still a knockout. She was still beautiful. And Abraham said, the king will want you, Pharaoh will want you, and they'll kill me to get me out of the way. So do this. Please say that you are my sister, so it may go well for me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, that was a half-truth, but it was intended to deceive even though it was half true, the full intent was to deceive. Um, now it came about when they, uh, when Abram entered Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abraham well for her sake. And he gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. Now, we don't know how Pharaoh found out. We don't know. Now, when, when, and believe it or not, Abraham, uh, whose last name was also Chitty, did this a second time. <laughs> and I know how Abimelech found out. God came to him in a dream and introduced himself and said, Abimelech, you are a dead man. You won't live to see another day and because the woman you've taken is, is Abram's wife. And, and, and I tell you, that pagan king knew how to pray better than some Christians. He said, Lord, I didn't know. I mean, he told me that she was a sister. I didn't know. And God said, that's right. You didn't know. And for that reason, you're still breathing. And boy, I tell you what, Abimelech sent them on their way. And Pharaoh does the same thing, though we don't know how he became aware of the facts. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for myself as a wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Now he's already given him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. And people that don't understand the big picture, they're saying, well, God just blesses us. God, he, God let him do that in order for Abraham to be blessed. I want to tell you, a lot of the sheep 
and goats and camels and servants we get are not worth what they will cost us. Don't be so quick to say, oh, God just used this to, to bless Abraham. Really? Let's see what happened later. First of all, uh, it's interesting. When you mix cattle and sheep together, you, you're going to produce a range war. Because sheep have teeth like a razor. They eat down to the ground. If you've ever seen a cow, a cow, his teeth are configured differently. He has to wrap his tongue around the grass, pull it up, and then chew it up. And that's just going to be a problem. But you're not here for a livestock lesson. So let's keep going. <laughs> and Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They escorted him away and his wife and all that belonged to him. Now, let me just, there's a few things in your notes. I think I've touched most of these. But let me just be sure we understand faith so that we can answer the two questions. Faith is rooted in the idea of trust. Faith functions successfully in good times and bad times. Okay. Remember, loved ones, this is so important that way back before we were called Christians, and that was the first generation of Christians, but before we were called Christians, we were called believers. That's how important faith is. Um, there are some scriptures that I wrote down for you. John tells us that um, the victory that we have that overcomes the world is faith. We read from Habakkuk and Romans 1, Galatians 3, Hebrews 10, that we live by faith and without faith it's impossible to please God. Um, um, Jesus indicated to us that even if our faith is weak at times, it doesn't need to be terminal. Weak faith does not mean dead faith. Um, uh, and every one of us has experienced a faith level that is not at its best, but we should never lose sight of the enduring, eternal, divine nature of the faith we've been given. We'll wrap it up with that in just a moment. Uh, we'll come back to that thought. Um, John said in 1 John 5, 3 and 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Why are we overcomers? Because of our faith, not because of our talent, not because of our resources, not because of our programs. We're overcomers because of our faith. Let me ask two questions. What are some of the causes of weak faith and what are some of the consequences? Now, let's spend just a, a, a brief period as possible on both of these because I think we've painted a pretty good background for us to begin to understand faith. Um, what are some causes of weakened faith? Let's just take three that we see in Abraham's life. And you could put another half dozen down probably. But I want to use these three because these are the most obvious in this story. And this is a very pivotal time. He's just received the promise. He's just uh, taking the promise of God seriously. And, and I, I, want to, I want you to know that sometimes when you get your best new start, you're surprised to learn that some of the greatest opposition you'll ever face hits you right on the heels of that. That's why we can have a tremendous breakthrough and we should never be baffled if it seems like all hell comes against us because that's the nature of shaking. That's the nature of shaking. Be on the lookout for these three things. Here's number one, incomplete obedience. He said, leave the land, but he stopped in a place called Haran. He stayed there because possibly because his father was aged and he stopped there and had no reason to stop there. Uh, but it caused 
it, it caused a delay in the plan of God. And um, obedience will breed confidence, but lack of obedience, loved ones, I, I know in my own life, you end up looking over your shoulder sometimes for the rest of your life. That's what incomplete obedience will do. I have seen the debilitating work of shame and regret destroy a life little by little. It's hard to get a grasp on the nature of the grace of God that is so forgiving and so redeeming. We know it intellectually, but we find ourselves having to fight for if only I hadn't done that. If only I had not said that. If only I'd never met her. If only I'd never gone into this business. Um, incomplete obedience. Now, we've got we've to deal with, with the if onlys. A lot of times the if onlys, we've just, we were just following God. But sometimes there are if onlys because we didn't follow God, or at least not fully. He stopped in Haran. He didn't go into a new land. He just moved into another neighborhood. It was the same general area. I mean, it was a good distance, but it was the same culture, the same principles. He needed to get into a place where everything could be a fresh start, and he just, he just exchanged prison cells. And then he brought with him those who God told him to leave behind. He brought his father, and, and again, remember, this is not about discipleship requiring we leave family or that family's a bad thing. This is just what God required of Abraham. Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler and said, sell everything because that was a hook in his life. But nobody else did he say, sell everything. Zacchaeus probably had as much as the rich young ruler, but Jesus didn't demand that Zacchaeus give every, anything at all away. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to go through though and audit the books and everybody I've cheated, I'll pay them back fourfold. And that was good. But that was Zacchaeus idea, not even Jesus idea. So that's why God may require of one what he doesn't require of another. And that may be why he required of Abraham what seems extraordinary. He brought his father, he brought his nephew Lot. And how many of you remember there might be some concerns with Lot as the story moves on? It was a move in the right direction, but it was only a partial move. Uh, if you go to Jeremiah, now what chapter is it? Oh, I know, 35. <laughs> Jeremiah 35, for two or three chapters earlier, God has been dealing with the, the elders and the leaders of, of Judah, the leaders of Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is what God's telling you to do. He told the people of Israel to free their slaves he told them to do two or three other things and they did it and then took it back. They freed the slaves and then enslaved them again. They obeyed God and then took back their obedience. And they, it, it was, it was in, incomplete obedience. So God speaks in Jeremiah 35 to the prophet and says, bring uh, the Rechabites, Rechabites, bring them. They were a subculture in Israel bring them into a house, a nice house, and do what I tell you to do. And Jeremiah brought uh, the leaders into this nice house, the Rechabites, and he sets them down at a table and he takes expensive, exquisite wine of the land. I mean, this is a compliment. This is a, this is a wealthy gesture. And he fills up the bowls and gives it to the Rechabites. And he says, eat 
or, or um, uh, drink, drink to your fill. This is the best the land has to offer. And you are being honored today. You have served God and you are being honored. Take the wine and drink it. And the leader and, and other leaders of Israel are around looking. And the leader of the Rechabites thanks Jeremiah, but he says, we can't drink this wine. And he says, long ago, generations ago, God spoke to our ancestral father and told us that we were to live a life different than everyone else. He said, we are never to drink even a drop of the wine of the land. And we are not to live in houses. We are to live in tents. Because we are assigned to Israel that God will be with us even if we don't have things in the land. And God says, you're going to be moving around from place to place. Don't drink the fruit of the land. Uh, of the land. And that was a way of saying, don't stay anywhere long enough to, to, to produce wine. And don't live in houses, live in tents. And to this day, he said, we've never lived in houses. And we've, and we've always lived in tents. And we've never taken a drink of wine. Because he said, it may be allowable for the other Israelites, but it's not allowable for us. And Jeremiah looked at the other elders. And he says, this is what God expects. You obey and then withdraw. You obey and then you step back. But the Rechabites, they remember vows that were made generations ago. And this is complete obedience. And he, Jeremiah says to the Rechabites, God is about to bring judgment on all of these other leaders and all of their families, on the priests, on the prophets, on the kings. You are going to be judged and you are going to be taken away. But to the Rechabites, you will be free to go. Because you have obeyed the Lord fully. And loved ones, I just wonder sometimes if we have not satisfied ourselves with partial obedience. And then complained at God why he isn't coming through for us. But we need to rediscover the value of complete obedience of doing what God says to do. You say, well, what if I'm not sure that he meant this or this? Then go to the Lord and ask for clarity. I'm not asking you to be irresponsible. God, God never asked me to be, you know, do something stupid if I don't understand. He wants me. I mean, I've done stupid things, but I can tell you it's not him. It's me. But what God does expect, have you obeyed fully? Have you obeyed fully? Um, incomplete obedience. But then also we can forget the victories that God has given us. This was a time when he saw that I'm in a famine and I'm about to go into a land that's going to be very dangerous. That was a time for him to recall when God first spoke to him. That was a time for him to recover his first love. Psalm 103 tells us to do this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not all of his benefits. I want to tell you, loved ones, we need to begin to take note of what God has done for us. And we need to remember that. When Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army, Hezekiah said, let's pray this way. Let's pray this way. And he recounted who the glorious God in heaven was. And he said, this is what you've done for us. 
This is who you are and this is what you've done. And that's how they prayed. They weren't about to ask for a miracle until they said in their mind again, this is our God and this is the way he works. It's the same thing in the New Testament. When the children of God were told and threatened by the Sanhedrin and the temple police, don't teach anymore in the name of Jesus, the the apostles led them in a prayer that began by declaring who their God was and remembering what he had done. And because we remember what God has done, this is what we expect him to do now. So there's incomplete obedience, forgotten victories. And let me give you one more thing. And you've got to hurry. There's sustaining of sin. Um, Let me tell you, uh, loved ones, we have a tendency, we all do. We have a tendency of hating sin as long as it's somebody else's. But we will hold, oh, I'm looking here. Nah, this must be first service people I'm talking about. I don't know. No, uh, it's, it's true of all of us. We, we, we want to live right, and there are some sins we would never allow entering our life. But we will sustain things that we feel we can't live without. See, he's going to do this again. He knew as he traveled in the land, it's sort of like having travel insurance. I can always lie about my wife and say she's my sister, and that'll keep me safe. And it worked twice, but God was so gracious, he wouldn't let it work to its fulfillment. God interrupted it every time. He resorted to half-truths and deception to make his decision work. And let me tell you this about sin. Sin is seldom singular. It requires layer upon layer to be sustained. It's not just a little thing that we hold to because it requires another sin, another lie, another compromise, another deception to protect the foundation of that sin. It never works. So I need to be sure that I'm walking in complete obedience. I need to be sure that I'm remembering what God has done because that's what he'll do again. I need to remember that I can't compromise with evil because evil in in an attempt to to live, in an attempt to work, I've got to pile other sins on top of it. That's, That's one of the scriptures says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. See, that, that phrase, regard iniquity, is interesting. It doesn't mean if I do wrong, the Lord won't hear me. Oh, man, if he didn't hear us because we did something wrong, we'd all be in trouble. We know he hears us even when we do wrong. But when it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Regard is the idea of valuing, of placing on a, a, a ped- pedestal of in- influence. In other words, he says, if I elevate sin in my life, I have to keep adding sin to keep it propped up. And before long, I've created such a compromise that God says, I'm not going to work with you anymore. Not till you deal with this. Well, what are the results of weak in faith? Good question. Quick answer. Number one, when we have weak faith, that's usually the moment in our life where we waste time. Now, God is so sovereign that he's able to take even times of waste in our life and make fruit come from it. I know that. But it's very possible that God's plan was delayed for years. The the very thing they wanted, the son that they wanted, may have been delayed for years by going to Haran, by, by taking the family 
when they were commanded not to do that. So it wastes time, at least from the human perspective. Number two, there's damaged testimony. Abraham's testimony to the pagans of Canaan was damaged when he finally decided to come clean. I guarantee you that Pharaoh might have known that he was a prophet, but I don't think Pharaoh ever trusted him again. Uh, it, it can damage your testimony. It, it's, not a, it's not a question of forgiveness. It's not a question of did Sarah forgive him? I, I mean, it, it, she continued on the journey with him. But you've got to understand, it is a probability. I can't prove it, but it is a probability that God's representative in Canaan had damaged his testimony, perhaps beyond repair, to a large segment of people. Now, there were others that held him in high regard. I understand that. But it can damage your testimony. And number three, it can give you future trouble. There was such a tragedy that happened because of the lifestyle of Lot, who was told to be left behind. And when he was in Egypt, you say, well, he came out okay. He came out with a lot of stuff. Yeah, he came out with Hagar. And Hagar, she was certainly a victim. She was certainly a victim. But you see that her heart was not pure. She provoked Sarah. And caused a disruption in the family. And because of uh, the behavior of Hagar and of Ishmael, and it was a command of God. Can you imagine what it's like to take a son that was your, your only son and a son that you loved and put a skin of water and a skin of food and send him out into the wilderness? I can't imagine doing that. But it... But this sin had created a situation where extreme circumstances had to happen. What are the life lessons? Let's cover these real quickly and we'll go. Number one, one of Abraham's first tests was a famine that caused him to detour from the intended path. And this is the nature of shaking. Guys, I want to tell you something. Just because God gives you a miraculous promise, don't get it in your mind that you're home free. You, you, you can be, but understand that everything in your life is going to be shaken. That's a scriptural principle. You can't change it. You can't sidestep it. You can't rise above it. Everything in your life is going to be shaken so that the unshakable can remain. Understand this. Testing is not designed by God to destroy your faith. Testing is designed by God to validate it to show that it's real. Um, Peter says, these that's what James says. He says, don't be surprised when all these kind of trials come because God is, God is validating your faith. And Peter says this, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. Oh, I, I, I don't want the trials. It's the only way you're gonna know the real from the, from the unreal. It's the only way you're gonna know the valuable from the unvaluable. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So that when your faith remains strong through these trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You will be tested because God wants to validate your faith, which will give you honor in your standing before God. 
Here's number two. God is able to redeem and praise God for that, but his redemption does not always erase the consequences of your failure. I am so thankful there are mistakes that I've made that I would have thought, man, I'm just, I, I, I don't know how I'm ever going to work this out. And God miraculously shows mercy or kindness or sends somebody with mercy and kindness or provision into my life. And it's like God said, you know, this could have ruined you. This could have put you behind for years, but I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to cover this with mercy and grace. And I praise God for that. Sometimes he does that, but sometimes you have to pay the cost. You know, you have to pay that uh, 34% interest rate for going in your own plan or your own strength instead of letting him work for you. You know, you, you cheat on your wife or you cheat on your husband. They may forgive you. The children may forgive you and you may really have a, an established home. But I want to tell you, it's probably going to be a long time before you get to the place where if you're 30 minutes late coming home, your spouse doesn't wonder what you're doing. It's going to take some time. Here's number three. Do not mistake his mercy toward us as his indifference toward sin. Uh, I, I think one of the most misunderstood scriptures, I don't think we're wrong in what we're saying about it, but I'm, I'm on a search right now and I'm, I'm being turned upside down in my heart. The scripture that says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. I, th I think there's more to that than just, well, if God gives you a gift, you keep the gift even if you sin. Or if God, you know, if you, if you have a call from God and you, and you are unfaithful to the call, you're still under the call. I, I, I think in the sense of God's faithfulness and love, that's true. But I think there's something going on and we need to understand that whatever it is that's going on, if you are walking in sin, if I'm walking in sin, please understand that just because God continues to bless you and help you, don't think that's him saying it's okay. Don't mistake God's anointing for his approval. Number four, our weak faith need not be terminal. Um, in, in Romans 4, 18, I gave it to you in King James, which I love. And then I gave it to you in New Living Translation just to give you a different flavor of it. But I love the phrase that basically says this in verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I look at the life of Abraham. He staggered not at the promises of God. Right. He didn't stagger. He fell flat on his face a couple of times. But that's not, that's not a contradiction. The word that is translated, the phrase that's translated, he staggered not, it gives this idea. I think this is in your notes. He was not deficient in strength. Is that in the notes? He was not deficient in strength, authority, or power in his faith. It wasn't saying he staggered not means he never had a moment's hesitation. But he, he, his faith was of such nature that, there, that it had the strength and the authority and power to pick him back up. Now, he had to grow in it when he was told to go sacrifice his son. Do you remember that it was a three-day journey to Mount Moriah? And Romans tells us that on that journey, I think, uh, yeah, on that journey to Moriah, he came to a conclusion. He left 
with a question in his mind. God's going to bless the world through my son. Now God's telling me to go offer him as a sacrifice. And as he pours out his soul to God on that three-day journey, he comes to the conclusion, well, there's only one way this can happen. I'll take his life, but God will raise him from the dead. And, and God didn't have to do that. I mean, God could have done that, but God didn't do that. But do you see what happened with Abraham? When he didn't understand, he let his faith grow to a place of trust. Here's the last thing. We may fail. Now, we've just said we can't take our, we have to take our failure seriously. We may fail, but God remains faithful. In 2 Timothy 2, there's a hymn that Paul quotes. Uh, it's, 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 it's either called a wise saying or a hymn. Most scholars think that it's a hymn that he's quoting. He's, he, in other words, he's saying, hey, remember the song we sang in church last week? And this is the way the song ends. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Those people were reminded every time they came together for worship. Now, they're, they're admonished to be faithful, but even if we fail, he will never fail because he cannot deny who, is, is, who, who he is. In ASB, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, loved ones, I know, I, I know not all promises of God are unconditional. Uh, some of them are, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Some of them say, if you walk in obedience, you'll enjoy the fullness of the land. But there are some things that God swore to us on an oath. There are some things that God said, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And this is the way God feels about that. I'm, I'm not going to re-preach an old sermon, but we have enough new people. I, if you'll allow me three minutes to explain this. In the book of Genesis, where Abraham was told to cut the animals for sacrifice... And he laid the animals out and he waited for God to come. The way that covenant would be ratified is that the two parties, the animals would be cut and laid on the ground. Or if there was a big enough rock laid on a rock and the two parties in the covenant would, would themselves from opposite ends weave uh, like a figure eight between the pieces and they would pass each other. They would come back to the middle and they would join hands and they would agree. If I don't keep my part of the deal, may I be cut up into pieces like this animal's been cut up into pieces. That was the power of covenant. And um, there are some, there are some conditional promises. I know that, but there are also some unconditional promises. They may have consequences if we don't live up that we may not see the fullness in this life if we don't end up. There's all, these, there's all this fine print I, I don't have time to go over today. But God did something phenomenal with Abraham. He was explaining something to Abraham. This is my promise that I will bless you, your descendants, and you will be a nation. Abraham was overcome and could not walk the covenant. You know what God did? God walked for both parties. He walked for both parties. And loved ones, there are some things I need to do because God tells me to do it. And if I don't do it, I'm not going to receive the blessing he promises. But God wants me to know there are other things that even if I fail, he will not fail. And this is hard to preach because people misunderstand it. And they say, I'm saying something that I'm not saying. But I want you to know God is so committed to you that 
in, in light of these unconditional promises, I'll, I'll complete the work I've begun in you and so forth. God says, even if you can't do your part, I will walk it for you. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Loved ones, I'm telling you, walk in complete obedience. Remember the victories of the Lord. Don't sustain your sin. But remember you are serving a God that even if you utterly fall flat, God says, I'll walk with you or I'll walk for you. But I'm going to complete the work that I've begun in you. Father, we're out of time as usual. That's our motto here. But I want to bring all of your people to your presence because some are facing obstacles. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what they're going to do. And we need you to come and help us walk. Some of us need you to walk for us. Most of us need you to just walk with us because we can, we can do it. We can obey but Lord, we need your help. I'm asking for two things, Father. And loveness, please listen, whether you are watching online or you're here on campus at Brown Chapel or here. Um, understand that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is your first item of business to take care of. We're going to have ministry team up here at the front in just a moment. In fact, Pastor Justin, you can go ahead and get them into place. If you'd like to, ministry team, please come into place. Um, if you are watching online and you don't know that you are saved, if you'll call the number that will come up on your screen in just a moment, there will be someone at the phone ready to answer the phone and ready to help you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are people that you say, Pastor, I'm, I know I'm a Christian. I know I love the Lord. I know I'm not perfect, but I also know I can't be. But I need help. Financial, physical, relational. Pastor, I need God to step in for me and help me. I am, I am, I am up the creek without a paddle, and I need help. I want to encourage you to come. We're going to dismiss everybody and go offline in just a moment. But we want to encourage those who need prayer to come. Come to the front. Come to the ministry teams that are down here. If, if you need to wait, just wait. And while our ministry team, our worship team ministers, just worship with them. Worship with them and let your heart pour out to God and someone will be with you in just a moment. We will pray for you, okay? Father, we ask that you'd bless folks as they leave. Bless folks as they slip out of the sanctuary or wherever they are. Let your face shine upon them and give them peace. Give them a sense of God working in them and for them. Do that incredible work. 
Lord, there are, there are Rechabites that are here that have done everything that they knew to do. And I ask you to reward them for their complete obedience. But Lord, there are also others of us that we've, we've tried, but we failed. We, we're not offering excuses. We've tried, but we failed. But you will help us. I'm so thankful for your incredible love. You will help us. And so as we come with our needs today, bring hope and encouragement.